0: Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. Good morning. So good to see you. It's good to be here. We love to be with Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie. And since Dwayne's using a chair, I think I'm going to use one, too. Is that all right with you all? You know, it's amazing that we are here because on Wednesday, we're building a new TV studio in Moscow. And by the way, we're so thankful. Jesus, thank you for our studio. Who would have imagined that from Moscow, Russia, we would be broadcasting the teaching of the Bible around the planet. is that amazing? In the last two years, God also enabled us to purchase the largest Russian-speaking Christian satellite network in the world. It is ours. And 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we're broadcasting the Bible to the entire planet. And it is amazing where Russian speakers live. They are all over the world. For example, we have a huge contingency of people who live in Peru and Chile, and they tune in every week. And COVID was such a good thing for our ministry, because when people were locked down, Russian speakers began to look online for somebody who could teach them the Bible. And our church, which was already about 30,000 members online pre-COVID, by the end of COVID had grown to an attendance of 200,000. And I'm talking 200,000 that are with us every week. Now, if you think about 200,000, that's like two or three football stadiums of people that are together every week. And now we have our new studio And so we're filming from our new studio and from Moscow, we're taking teaching that people can trust to the ends of the earth. But the reason I'm telling you this is because just on this past Wednesday, I was walking through the new studio where construction is now taking place on Denise's TV set. And I was so excited about what I was looking at on the ceiling and the walls that I didn't notice a bucket that they were using to work. I tripped over the bucket, fell and broke my right foot. And the doctor said, You cannot walk on that foot, but look at me. I think I'm doing pretty good, don't you? It's miraculous. I believe the Lord has touched me. I'm just doing great. But anyway, just wanted to share that victory report. Jesus was a healer, and Jesus is a healer. He's still in the healing business. But open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, and I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 12. And if you were in the previous service, how many of you were in the previous service? Did any of you stay? We're going to pick up where we left off in the last service. If you missed it, don't worry, because I'm going to make sure you get what they got. But Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for this time of the word of God, that we can sit down together and we can share from the word. Holy Spirit, you're the great teacher. So today we ask you to take us into the scriptures until we see it, we feel it, we experience it, and we're changed by it. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. By the way, I want my wife to stand. Denise, would you stand? I'm so glad Denise is here with me. But today we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. And I'm reading from the King James Version, and we're going to go into the Greek text today to see how the Greek says it differently. But when you come to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14... It says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Then in verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. But I want us to go back to the very beginning of verse 14. If you have an pen, ink pen or a pencil, get ready to take notes today. And the first thing you need to do is either underline or circle the word follow in verse 14. And as I shared in the previous service, this word follow in Greek is the word dioko. And this word dioko is very important because in the New Testament, it is normally translated as the word persecute. It means to hunt or it means to follow. And it can be translated to persecute in a hunting sense, it described a hunter who put on all of his hunting clothes and his hunting gear, and he was so committed that he was going to capture that animal, that he follows the scent of the animal. He follows the tracks of the animal. And in fact, the tense that is used here means to habitually follow and follow and follow and follow and follow until finally you apprehend, capture, or kill that animal. That is the word which is used in this verse when the Bible tells us we are to follow after peace. It describes something that is very intentional, which means you're not going to have peace with other people unless you're intentional about getting peace with other people. And furthermore, because it is the word dioko, it means peace does not normally come to us. If you're sitting just hoping that peace will come your way, you probably are not going to experience peace. If you want peace in your relationships, then you have to do something to follow after peace peace. The same word, dioko, is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, where it says we are to follow after love. The same word, which means if you want loving relationships... You can't sit at home and wait for somebody to call you. If you just sit and wait for love to come your direction, you're probably going to be disappointed. If you want to have a friend, then you've got to be a friend. If you want to have loving relationships, then you've got to do something to pursue them. You've got to follow and follow and follow and follow and follow until finally you capture the loving relationship which you are seeking. So now we take it into this verse where it says, follow peace So if we want to have peace, we can't wait on peace to come to us. If you want peace with your spouse, then you've got to pursue it. If you want peace with your sibling, you've got to pursue it. If you want peace with your friend or your employer or a fellow worker, you can't just hope it will come your way. But Dioco, you've got to say, Holy Spirit, show me how to put on my hunting clothes, my hunting gear. Show me to detect the scent of peace, the tracks of peace, and I'm going to follow and follow and follow and follow until finally I capture peace. You know, yesterday we had lunch with Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie, and at this season of the year, they're going to talk about hunting. Well, just yesterday before they met us for lunch, Pastor Dwayne had already been in a tree That is amazing to me. I can't not imagine sitting in a tree. I'm obviously not from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Sitting in a tree, just waiting. You don't end up in a tree by accident. It is intentional. You are there because you have made a decision. You've gone to get something. And now we find that same concept in this verse. If you want peace, then you've got to be very intentional to find a way to get it. But let's talk about peace. The word peace in Greek is the word "arene." It's translated as the word peace, but there's so much more to the word peace than just peace. Because the word peace, the Greek word erone, describes civility after a period of incivility. When there's been conflict, there's been hostility, but now a decision has been made to set the weapons aside And rather than have incivility, now we've come to a period of civility. We've come to a period of restoration where the weapons have been laid aside. And rather than spend all of our emotions in conflict, we've decided to redirect our emotions and to put them into rebuilding, reconstructing, building something positive. All of that is in this word peace. It's very important because when the Bible says we have peace with God, It means the enmity, which once existed between us and God has been removed. And now God is in the business of working with us to put order and civility in our relationship even with him. But now we find that if we're going to have restoration with others, if we're going to have civil relationships with others, it is not going to happen by happenstance. We've got to put everything we have into it. That's what the Bible means when it says, follow peace. And notice it says, with all men. The word all in Greek is all encompassing. It means this should literally be our goal with all men. And then it adds, and holiness. Everybody say holiness. The word holiness in Greek is the word hagias. The word hagias appears in the Bible the very first time in Exodus chapter 3. And when you read the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, we read of the moment whenever Moses came up onto the mountain, he saw the bush that was burning. And God said, Take off your shoes for the ground where you're standing on is what? Holy ground. That is the first instance of the word holy in the Old Testament. And so it sets the standard for what the word holy means. It espies a place that is different, it is separate. And in fact, when Moses came into that place, he crossed a threshold which left what was common and ordinary, and he entered into something so sacred that God called it holy the Greek word hagias. The word hagias in this moment described that place where the presence of God had touched. And though it was just a regular mountain, and in fact, if you had seen that mountain, it didn't look different than any other mountains around it. But when the divine presence touched that mountain, the presence of God sanctified that mountain. And suddenly it became a different mountain. It became a separated mountain. It became consecrated. It became a holy place. It's very important that we understand that. Because the Bible says we are holy. We are saints. The word saint is the same word, the Greek word hagios. If you just look at us, according to the outward view, we just look like everybody else. But my friends, the very fact that we are called saints means we're not like everybody else. We may outwardly look like everyone else, but when the divine presence touched us, the presence of God, which is the Holy Spirit, separated us. He sanctified us. And in this world, we are not like others. We are called to be saints. We're called to be holy. Another example of the word holy would be the Bible. What do we call it? It's called the Holy Bible. The word Bible in Greek is the word biblias, it means book. But the first part of the word is hagias, the Holy Bible, which means the Bible. Though it is a book, it is unlike any other book. You can go into the library, which is filled with thousands and thousands of books. And in the library, you will likely find a Bible. But the Bible, because it is the Holy Bible, it is different. It stands in a unique category all by itself. There is not another book in the world like unto the Bible, because it is a separate, it is a holy, it is a consecrated book. You have to understand that when you discuss the word holy. But now you come to this verse... And it says, follow after peace aggressively, habitually, put all your heart into it. Follow, follow, follow until you capture peace with all men and holiness. And in this particular context, this word holiness means God has changed us, and therefore he holds us by a higher standard. We're not allowed to behave like other people. We have been changed, and therefore God expects our behavior to be different. He expects our behavior to be separate, to be of a much higher level. And in fact, when we fall into carnality and allow strife or conflict, the verse goes on to say the effects of that. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness, be different, be separate, without which no man shall see the Lord. And when you first read this, it sounds like if you don't have this state of peace in relationships, or if you have any kind of strife in your life, maybe you won't see the Lord. But the fact is, there have been many bitter Christians that died and went to heaven. So what is this talking about? The words shall be in Greek are a particular word and tense, which literally means you shall not be admitted into the immediate presence of the Lord, which means when you have something going on in your heart which separates you from others, maybe you have bitterness, maybe you have unforgiveness, something that's privately raging in you, maybe no one knows about it except you. But when that is taking place in you, that issue in your heart will stop you. It will prohibit you. It will block you from experiencing the presence of the Lord, which explains why. You can be in a church service where everyone around you is blessed. They're crying. They're laughing. They're deeply touched, and you're sitting there wondering, what's wrong with me? I feel absolutely nothing. It's like you're not able to enter into that. And that's what this verse is describing. That when there are unresolved issues on the inside of you, those issues become a prohibitor, which literally stops you from being admitted into the immediate presence of the Lord. And that is why this issue is so very important. And that is why when you continue to the next verse, it says, looking diligently. Now that is what the King James Version says. If you read this in the Greek text, it is the Greek word, Episcopas And this is very important. It's a compound of two words, the word epi, which means over, and the word scopas, which means to look. The word scopas from the word skopeo is where you get the word for a telescope or a microscope. It describes a very, very intense focus or an intense looking. But when you compound the word scopas with the word epi, it's no longer just looking, but it's episkopos. It's looking over something. It's taking oversight of something. And in fact, it is one who has a supervisory position. His job is to oversee a thing, to take care of a thing, and to be responsible for a thing. And in the New Testament, the word episkopos is most notably translated as the word bishop. So you can actually translate this verse bishoping yourself, bishoping yourself. You have to pause for a moment then and think, what is a bishop? Well, I'm a bishop. We have many, many churches. We've got five affiliates just in the city of Moscow. A bishop is one who has oversight of a church or a group of churches. And as the bishop, the buck stops with him. If something goes afoul in his churches, he cannot blame someone else because he is the Bishop, he has oversight. And so if something goes wrong with what is under his care, he has to accept responsibility for the fact that in some way he did not give proper oversight to what was going on underneath his supervisory role. Now you take it into this verse. And we find that very often when people have issues in their heart, they want to blame others. They want to say, well, the reason that I have this attitude is because of my wife. Or I would be more faithful to my church, but my church was not faithful to me. When I needed my church, where was my church for me? People have issues with everyone, but the fact is, we are all bishops of our own hearts. I'm the bishop of my heart. And it doesn't matter what anyone else around me has done. I am the only one with authority to say yes to what takes place inside me. I can say no to bitterness, or I can make room for bitterness in my heart. And now when we come to this verse, we find that we cannot pass the buck to someone else. And I understand that there really are issues which happen in life very unjust things which happen to people. But as believers, we have to come to a place where we stop shifting blame to others and we learn to accept responsibility for our own spiritual condition. And that is what this phrase, looking diligently, the Greek word episkopos, means within this text. We are the bishops of our heart and therefore we have to assume responsibility for what is going on inside our hearts. And the verse goes on to say, looking diligently, or bishoping ourselves, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now, that's a very, very interesting statement. How do you fail of the grace of God? Most people would say that grace is what God does freely for you, and that is absolutely true. And in fact, the word grace, the Greek word charis, is also where you get the Greek word keritos, which is where you get the word favor or something that's been done freely for you. So an act of grace really is something done freely for you by God, but the word grace, the Greek word kairos, is such a powerful word and most believers today have no idea really what it means. Even when I hear people teach on grace on TV, they, 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 they miss it completely. The word grace is not a New Testament word. It became a New Testament word. The word grace, which is the Greek word charis, was a word used by pagans, pagans who worshiped other gods, to describe a moment when the gods would, by some act of favor, touch an individual. And when a person was touched by grace, they were empowered to be different than they were before. They were so empowered to be different that people would say a person under grace was under a divine spell. That's literally what the Greeks said. Oh, he's under grace. He's under a divine spell. He's different than he used to be. He's been touched to such an extent that he no longer is what he used to do. He can now do what he could never do by himself. He's under some kind of a divine spell, which has completely transformed him and empowered him to be different. This explains why the Apostle Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He really meant, by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. Because when the grace of God touched him, it so transformed him that suddenly he could do what he couldn't do before. He could behave differently than he behaved before because he was under the spell of God. He was under a touch of divine grace. It was a touch freely given By God. Well, if it's freely given by God, if it's free, then how can you fail of it? And this verse says, Lest any man fail of the grace of God. Well, you can fail of the grace of God. I'll explain it to you. The Apostle Paul said it in other ways. For example, in one place, the Apostle Paul said to his readers, Don't receive the grace of God in vain, which means God can give you his grace. But if you don't cooperate with it, it will not produce what it is supposed to produce. Even though God gives it, you've got to cooperate with it. In another place, the apostle Paul said that you can frustrate the grace of God. Now, isn't that an amazing statement? That God gives grace to change you. For example, in the context of these verses, someone that you've had an issue with, and all of a sudden, it takes you by surprise, you're suddenly graced, And you know that you need to forgive. Naturally, you would not forgive. But now suddenly a moment has come and you are compelled to forgive. And now you have a choice. You've got to cooperate with that grace and forgive or you can resist it and the grace of God will produce nothing in your life. You can resist it to such a point that you frustrate the grace of God. And though the grace of God came to do a great work in you, you have frustrated the grace. And as a result, you fail of the grace. You fail of it. You fall short of it because you didn't hitch up with it and partner with what that touch of God came to do. So now we have the picture of a person who has an issue with somebody. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a sibling, somebody at church. And that issue has just become so deeply rooted on the inside of you. and you're in church, or one day you're riding in your car, or you're in prayer, and suddenly there's such a feeling of compassion which comes on you, and God is gracing you in that moment to deal with that issue. He's gracing you. He's enabling you to do what you don't know how to do by yourself, and now you can partner with it and forgive, or you can say, excuse me, forgive After what they did to me, you expect me to forgive them. What about them? What about them? They're the ones that need to ask for forgiveness. What about them? And if you don't partner with the grace, you can frustrate the grace. You can receive the grace of God in vain. And as a result, though the grace came to do something wonderful in you, you'll fail of it. Not because the grace is ineffective, but because you refused to participate when God came to help you. That's what this verse is describing. And that's why the first of the verse says, looking diligently, the Greek word episkopos, it's your heart, take responsibility for yourself. And when the grace of God comes to help you get through an issue with an individual, partner with that grace. If you don't, you can fall short of what the grace came to do in you. Then it goes on to say, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. And notice it says, "less any root. The word root in Greek is the word rizza. The word ridza describes a plant that is deeply, 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 deeply rooted. It's sending its roots deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know the root is there because it begins to produce life, And that's why the rest of the verse says, lest any root of bitterness springing up, if there's a root of bitterness inside you, eventually it will begin to poke its way up through the soil. There will be evidence of it. And usually the evidence is bitterness. And that's why the verse says, any root of bitterness, the word bitterness, the Greek word pachria, which describes something that is sharp, sour, caustic, foul. And usually in this context, it would describe words that are bitter or words that are caustic. And here we find that when a person has a root of bitterness, it begins to show up in the mouth. And it's amazing. Jesus said, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, which means the mouth is the revealer of what's in the heart. If I want to know what you love, all I have to do is be quiet and listen to you speak because your mouth will give you away. If I want to know what's in the condition of your heart, I don't have to ask. All I have to do is listen because the mouth is the great revealer. And, my friends, it would be wise for you to ask your closest friends what do you hear me talking about more than anything else? Because what they will tell you will probably reveal. What's really going on inside your inner condition? Because the mouth really is the great revealer. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when there is a root of bitterness inside a person's heart, eventually it comes out of the mouth. And we're told in James chapter 3 that it is impossible to control the tongue. So whatever is inside you eventually is going to roll off the tongue. And in fact, in James chapter 3, it says the tongue is impossible to tame. The word tame, the Greek word Demadzo," the very word which was used to describe wild animal tamers who could tame the wildest and most ferocious of beasts, but the tongue can no man tame. It's connected to what's on the inside of you. And in fact, the Bible says it's an unruly evil filled with deadly poison. When I was a young man, very young, I collected snakes. In fact, when Denise and I got married, we had a big snake. I had a python. It was about 12 feet long. I mean, we're talking about a zoo specimen. So I know something about snakes. And when you come to James chapter three, and it says the tongue is an unruly evil filled with deadly poison, the Greek word that is used there describes a poisonous viper. Snakes have poison banks in their head. It's in their head. And when they inject their fangs into a victim, the first thing that a snake does, it begins to push down with its head. And when it pushes down with its head, it is the equivalent of you pushing a syringe deeper and deeper. Every time it pushes, it pumps that poison deeper and deeper into the flesh. And by using these words in James chapter 3, James is saying that when the tongue finally is let loose, it buries its fangs deep. And isn't it amazing that you can try to control your tongue and you can even say, I'm not going to say it. 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 And bam, you say it. Suddenly you inject the fangs deep and bam, you press hard and you shoot that venom into your victim. What's in you Eventually, it's going to come out of the mouth. And now we find in this verse that if you fail of the grace of God, lest any man, lest any root of bitterness. And let me say one more word about this word, root. Sometimes a root of bitterness is against somebody that never did anything to you. But they did somebody something to somebody that you know. Think how many people have issues with someone that never did anything to them but they've heard what they did to somebody else i really came face to face with the root of bitterness when denise and i in 1991 moved our family to the former soviet republic of latvia and i was amazed that in latvia the russians and the latvians all lived very well together. They really did. They lived very, very well together. They'd been together for 55 years. They had dealt with all their issues. But the immigrants who left Latvia 55 years earlier and who went to another nation left with great offense and great bitterness, and they had bitterness issues, which the people who were living in Latvia didn't even have anymore. Deep, deep roots of bitterness. And the immigrants' children had bitterness. And they had never even been in the Republic of Latvia. And it shows us that a root of bitterness can be passed from one generation to another generation and to another generation. For example, one family member can say something bad about somebody and it begins to defile the entire family's opinion about that person, even though that person may have never done anything to the family at all. But they become defiled, they become stained. By one person who had a root of bitterness. A root of bitterness, you're going to see in just a moment, can defile many. This is a big issue. Never think that a root of bitterness is just yours and affects only yours, you, because this verse says eventually it defiles many. And in fact, the verse goes on to say, lest any root of bitterness springing up, pay attention to what comes out of your mouth, If you find yourself finding moments when you can express what you really don't like about somebody, when really you don't even need to express it at all, it may be proof that there's a root down there that's beginning to produce life. And my friends, the moment you hear yourself saying things that are unkind, judgmental, not even necessary. That's a moment for you to put everything on pause. And rather than want to deal with the person you're offended with, you need to look at your own heart because that's evidence there's something on the inside of you that is bitter, that's beginning to produce bitter fruit. It's time to stop. And as the bishop of your own heart, take responsibility and root it out. And then the verse goes on to say, "Less any root of bitterness springing up Trouble you. The word trouble in Greek is the word "enokleo." The word "enokleo" would be better translate, translated hound you, stalk you. For example, you have an issue with somebody and the very thought of that person just hounds you. Just hounds you. The very thought of that person just stalks you. It's with you all the time. My friends, God does not intend for you to live a life like that. He does not want you to live with a stalker on your trail, with a thought hounding you, harassing you all the time. And the verse goes on to say, and thereby many be what? Defiled. The word defiled are you ready for a new Greek word? Spilos. Do you hear a word? It's where you get the word to spill, to spot, or to stain. It's the very word you would use to describe if you had white carpet in your house, somebody went walking across your living room with a gr- glass of grape juice, they tripped, they fell, and they spilled their grape juice on your white carpet. Though you scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub, the effects of it are always there. There is a stain. There is a spot. And every time you see the spot, every time you see the stain, it reminds you of the day when that person should not have been walking across your white carpet with a glass of grape juice. It is a permanent reminder, a permanent stain of something in the past that has deeply affected you. And now we find that when a person has a spirit of offense or a root of bitterness, eventually it doesn't just affect them, but there's a spillover effect which stains other people around them. For example, let's give, give you an example. How many of you have ever had somebody tell you something really bad about somebody That you don't personally know. And every time you see that person, your mind is stained with what you heard about that individual. It may not even be true. It may not be true at all. It just may be that person's distorted view of something. But your mind has been stained because of what somebody said to you. Or let's use another example. A man who comes to a church, he gets saved. Oh, his life is so transformed. Oh, he loves that church. He thinks Pastor and Dwayne, Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie are just the best thing in that Resurrection Life Church. Oh, it is the best place I've ever been in my life. I'm going to give my money. I'm going to serve God. And ah, oh, they just love, 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 love. And then one day... They see something that doesn't quite meet their expectation. And they become disappointed. Well, just let me tell you something. It happens in every church. If you come to my church, it's going to happen in my church too. That's because the church is comprised of human beings that are washed in the blood of Jesus. But you're never going to meet a perfect person, a perfect pastor, or a perfect church. So you have to be realistic The church is the church. We're all redeemed people trying to grow up and become better. And sometimes you see things that you wish could have been done a little bit better. But because this person doesn't have the maturity to deal with it, what he sees begins to fester on the inside of him. And as it festers, the root begins to get deeper and deeper and deeper. He used to come to church with his family because he loved to worship. But now when he comes to church, he takes his seat in his pew and he's there to nitpick. He's looking now to see what he doesn't like, what he's going to disapprove of. Are they going to do it again? That's the sign of a root of bitterness working in him. When he goes home from church rather than sit around the table at lunch with his family and talk about how wonderful the church is, that root of bitterness begins to show up in the dad's mouth as he says, I can't believe the church did this, and I can't believe the church did that, and I just can't believe, and I just wish that... And sitting around that table are his children. And that father does not realize the power of his words as he verbally begins to stain the view of his children about the church. Now when the children come to church and they look at the pastor, they look at the pastor with the same suspicious eyes as their father because they've been stained by the irresponsible words of their father. They look on the church with suspicion because they've been stained. Their little hearts, their little minds, their little consciences have been affected by the irresponsible words of parents speaking words to children that children should never hear. And they stain their children. Then finally... When the dad says, you know what? I'm going to get my heart right with God. I'm going to get it right with the pastor. I'm going to get it right with the church. The pastor gets his heart right. But the problem is now the dad's got his heart right, but his kids have spiritual problems because they were stained by two freely spoken words. This is the reason why when Denise and I were raising our children, we made a decision. We were pastoring. We had a lot of challenges. My goodness, my goodness. We had people lie. We had people steal. We had the mafia after us. My friends, what we have been through in our ministry, people that have maligned us in the former Soviet Union, but when our kids were young, we made a decision. If we have issues to deal with, We're going to keep them right here. We're not going to give our issues to our kids. We're going to make our kids believe the church is the happiest place on planet earth. And in front of our kids, we never said a negative word, not about one person in our church, not ever. And if Denise and I were dealing with issues, we talked about it between ourselves only, but in front of our kids, we talked about the church as being the happiest place on the earth because we didn't want to give our issues to our kids. And now when you come to this text, the writer of Hebrews begins in verse 14 by telling us that we have a responsibility that if we want to have peace with somebody, then we have to get active. We have to be very deliberate in the way we pursue peace. And rather than use all of our energy and incivility, let's redirect our energy to reconstructing things and doing our best to make it the best we can. And remember that holiness, God holds us to a higher standard. We can't behave in the same carnal way we used to behave because now we're God's holy people. And not only that, if we allow this nonsense to go into our heart, we're not going to experience the presence of God. It's going to block us from his presence. Verse 15. rather than shifting blame to everybody else for what we feel and what we see. We need to accept the fact that we're the bishops of our own heart. We have to take accountability for ourselves. It doesn't matter what they did. I'm responsible for what I feel and how I react. And if the grace of God has come to help me get over it, then I need to hook up with the grace of God, not frustrated. I need to work with the grace of God. Otherwise, it won't be able to do what it came to do. And it really came to help me. It came to help me do what's right and to forgive. And by the way, if I frustrate the grace of God and don't do it, let it do it work in me, rather than be changed, I'm going to end up with a root of bitterness. It's going to fill my mouth. And in the end, it's going to defile those that are around me. It will spot them. It will stain them. I think it's a pretty powerful text. There's much more than meets the eye in these verses than what you first read when you read this in the King James Version. And in this text, God is imploring me, every one of us, to take responsibility and to say, Lord, it's my heart. I'm the bishop of my own heart. You hold me accountable for what I take place, for what I allow to take place inside here. And even if somebody else did wrong to me, I'm taking responsibility for what I've allowed to happen in here. And I'm embracing the grace to change me. And dear friends, if you will reach out by faith and pray that and embrace the grace, God will give you kairos. He'll give you keratos. He'll give you a favorable touch that will empower you to do what you need to do. That's what was on my heart to share with you today. I want you to put your hand on your heart. I'm going to pray for you as Jared comes. Father, we thank in the wonderful name of Jesus for the Bible that is just so amazing. The Bible is amazing. We thank you for the word of God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would extend to us a touch of divine grace to change us. Help us to live up to who we are. Lord, you've changed us. You've called us to be different and to behave and to act and to think differently than we used to. Help us to come up to who you've really made us to be. And I thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day, and we will see you again soon.